other believers. Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things amongst yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who's wise enough to decide these issues, but instead one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers? Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and even cheat your fellow believers. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and stomach for food. That's true, though someday the Lord God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined with the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. So my title this morning is You Are Not Your Own, or as there version that we've just read says you do not belong to yourself now in a funny way that I think that's a bit of a funny thing to say isn't it strange that you are not your own so let me share a couple of illustrations that maybe I hope will help us in the 1991 film Robin Hood Prince of Thieves Robin Hood played by Kevin Costner leads a breakout from the, his prison in Jerusalem. And in the process, he takes pity on a fellow prisoner 
an educated, sophisticated Moor, played by Morgan Freeman, and he saves his life. As a result, Azim promises not to leave Robin until he has repaid the debt. Get that? He's not going to leave Robin. And as a result of that, he starts to follow Robin wherever he goes. They leave the Middle East. They go to a far-off-for-him land of England. He goes wherever Robin goes. Robin's battles become his battles. And in the end, well, I'll, I won't spoil it in case you want to dig it out and have a look at it. It's a great film. But the point is this. Azim takes on a debt of honor and of gratitude to Robin. He is no longer his own. He goes where Robin goes. He fights the battle Robin fights. He is no longer a free agent. He is not his own. He doesn't belong to himself. Well, if that's too old an example for you, actually I'm going to give you an even older one. Just over 40 years ago, I stood in front of a congregation, not as big as this, looking at a beautiful woman called Fran. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and I promised her all that I have and all that I am. And I also promised to forsake every other woman in this world, however many billion there are, to be with her. Now, I have to say they weren't all queuing up, but that was my promise. <laughs> Not all of them. I willingly took on a debt of love. I willingly accepted limits on what I would do, where I would go. I bound my future to hers for as long as we lived, and I did it gladly, and I don't regret it. I am not a free agent. I am not a free agent. I cannot do just what I want to do because I am bound to her. I am not my own. I am not, I do not belong to myself. The Bible tells us a Christian is someone who has had an encounter with God and accepted, like Azim in the film, that he needs rescuing. He or she needs rescuing from a situation they can't escape from. We owe a debt of God to God for the lives we have led, sin, the things we've done in thought and word and deed that offend God. We have a debt which we could never pay. But Jesus in his death on the cross has paid it for us and we, as we accept what he has done, take on a debt of love and of gratitude to him that we will never, ever be able to repay, however long we follow him. We are a man, a woman, a youth, a child who owe him our allegiance because we've been bought with a high price. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to know we are not our own. Now, Paul is writing to Christians in Corinth, people like us, saints who don't look very saintly, Christians with dodgy theology, and dubious lifestyles, but saints nonetheless. Believers who've been born again supernaturally, but who revert to living as mere humans, as John spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Paul is horrified 
by what he hears is happening. He clearly sees that they have not understood, they've not really grasped something about the body of Christ, the church, and about their own salvation. They might have heard it, but the evidence points to the fact they didn't really get it. And I see this chapter like a sort of a a chunky sandwich. There are two bits of pretty chewy, pretty full of bits, maybe even indigestible bread, where there's a lot of instruction and correction and challenge with a filling in the middle, a tasty, wonderful filling of the good news of Jesus and of grace. So, let's take a bite. Lawsuits. First up in this chapter are two church members who are suing each other in the courts. Now, I don't think Paul's surprised that there are disputes, because there always will be. What he's shocked at, excuse me, what he's shocked at is the way they're handling it. He starts with the church. Surely, he says, there's someone among you who can help sort this out. A matter he described as small or trivial. Surely. You see, Paul's view of the church is a very high view. The church, which is going to be involved with God in the judgment of the world, yet they can't sort out a trivial problem. And they go to the the law courts. Paul is saying the church needs to deal with this as a relational matter. We're family. We're not a business. Paul says we should deal with this as a means of uniting brothers who are at odds, of restoring relationship. I wonder if that's how you and I approach struggles we have, disagreements we have. Do we approach them as family or do we approach them with a legal mindset? You see, their view of the church is too low. Paul's concern is that the name of the church and the reputation of the gospel is going to be brought into disrepute. Unbelievers will look in and say, look, see, these Christians say they love each other. Here they are, falling out in front of us. That never ends well. It's shameful, Paul says, bringing God's church and the gospel into disrepute, bringing discord in the church family is a shameful thing. Now remember, this letter would have been read out in the church. Can you imagine that if I was doing it this morning? So these two people would have been there probably. Imagine sitting there. What's he going to say? He's gone for the church. I think we've dodged a bullet there. But they don't. Paul then starts with them. Which side will he take? Answer, neither. Shame on you both, he says. Shame on the guy who cheated his brother in the first place. Shame on the guy who took it to court, despite the impact on the church and the gospel. Wouldn't it be better to just let it go and trust God that he will sort out the issue? I think it's deeply challenging to our heart attitudes in, an, in a very litigious age, isn't it? <laughs> Where everybody's concerned about their rights and suing and whatever. It's not an unfamiliar problem in our age, entitlement. Is it more important to me that I'm proved right, that I get what I owe, than it is that the name of Jesus is lifted high, than it is if the church is brought into disrepute, that the body is damaged? 
The cheater's focused on his greed. The suing one is focused on his rights. And Paul focuses on the family of God and the good name of the gospel. Sobering to think that our behavior can bring shame on the gospel and shame on the church. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? And Paul says it can. Now, before I go on, let me also talk about what Paul is not saying. We need to interpret this bit of the Bible in the light of all the other bits in the Bible. And Paul talks in other places about the role of authorities, kings, governors, law enforcement. He describes them as appointed by God, appointed to bring justice on the earth and to limit wickedness. And Paul himself, in a different place, resorts to the secular courts when he's in prison and he appeals to Caesar. That went through the Roman system and is what caused him to end up in Rome, God's plan for his life. So Paul is not saying we should never use the courts. He's just saying we need to use the right court for the right thing. Paul describes this issue as small or trivial. It's clearly not a serious offense. And criminal behavior, serious things need to go to the appropriate authorities. Sadly, the church and other organizations in the past, in the wider sense, has not always done that. Matters of abuse, for instance, should go straight to the appropriate authorities. They are not to be dealt with in the church. But relational matters should be. Paul doesn't set a rule. He's trying to set a principle that in relational matters, we should do it among the church where God's wisdom and grace can be brought to bear. See you in court should be a last resort in those cases. Secondly, we get to a bit of filling. In the middle of all this dismay at what's going on, the theme of grace and the gospel is never very far from what Paul says and thinks. And he puts it in right here. Like a, the filling of the sandwich, like I think the hinge that this whole thing turns on. And in verse 9, he says this. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? And he goes on to make a long list of lifestyles that are not compatible with God's desire for us to flourish. When Paul says, don't you know, I think what he's really saying is this. I know you do know because I told you. But it sounds to me as if you've either forgotten or you didn't get it. So I'm going to tell you again just to make sure you get it. And he lists all these different lifestyles and then he goes on with these powerful words. Some of you used to be like this. Some of you used to be like this. Now what that tells me is that the church in Corinth was composed of people who'd come to faith from every section of their society and culture. It was all there. In the church, their lives transformed by the good news about Jesus. Now, you know, we think sometimes the challenges we're facing today are unique. And in some ways they are, but in some ways they're not. Corinth was the sex capital of the world at that time. 
Towering over the skyline was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess, the Greek goddess of love. There were a thousand temple prostitutes there. Homosexuality and even pedophilia was on public display, practiced openly. And Nero, who was the emperor at the time, married both a castrated boy and a man and called them his wives. How about that? Not such a different world to the world we're living in today. The biblical understanding, the God-given gifts of sex and sexuality and sexual morality were no more popular in their day than they are now. That's not a new thing. But truth always separates itself from the society around it. It always calls out and challenges the culture. The church was set apart from that. And yet there were, it was full of people who were saved from it. You might like to pause and think at some point. When we look at our culture today, what groups of our culture are missing from our gathering? What groups of our culture are we not reaching with the good news about a Jesus who can transform? Even when we look at the list, I suspect our eyes focus in on one or two things, immorality, homosexuality. Now that's clearly a huge subject for us today. It's a complex one, a challenging one, and the subject of much debate, particularly in our Western society. And I want to acknowledge it deserves more time than we're gonna give it this morning in a different setting which is more interactive than we have this morning. And I want to encourage you, uh, just at this point before I go on, if you've got questions about how the Bible applies in that, if you've got questions about how it is for you personally, issues you're struggling with as a, an individual, as a parent, I want to encourage you to talk about it. Find a trusted Christian friend. Talk to one of the leaders about it. It's really important we wrestle with the issues and don't ignore them. We need to be talking in here about what everybody else is talking about out there. And we need to be bringing truth to bear on it. And there are other resources available too. For example, I, I want to point you to a Christian organization called Living Out, which is particularly dealing with same-sex attraction, and I would commend them to you. Have a look at their website. They're actually holding a conference in Reading in November, just for a morning. If this is an area that you want to know more about, that impacts your life, I'd encourage you, go to it. You'll gain something from it. I think we also want to understand that there are agendas in work, at work in our society today, sowing confusion, sowing questioning in our children and our young people, and we need to be there to love them to support them, to help them to navigate these issues and find the life in all its fullness that Jesus came to bring. And remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers and authorities. As a grandparent, I'm praying for my kids who are raising their own kids in this. As a grandparent, I'm praying for my grandkids that God will protect and nurture them and make them strong. And I want to encourage you to do the same. We should pray as much as we talk about these issues. There's something big going on. Now, 
Finally, before I move on, I just want to notice that the list is actually quite long. And there are things on that that may not draw your eye, but are just as relevant. Greediness, drunkenness, idolatry, when we put something in God's place, stealing, verbal abuse. You know, we can easily skim the list. Do you do this? Skim the list, check the worst ones. Oh, well, I don't do that. It's a scary list. Now, there is forgiveness in Jesus. We're not talking about if we fall, if we stumble. We're talking about lifestyles that God wants to transform. But it's worth looking at the list. I wonder if Paul were writing the first letter to the Wintonians today, what would he be calling out for us? (laughs) The other glorious thing to notice and more than notice is the word but this is what some of you were but this is your history but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified clean from our sins made holy given our filthy rags are the best efforts we can make, given away and the righteousness of Jesus given to us, justified, just as if I'd never sinned with God. That's what Paul is reminding them of, that they are new creations. They are born again. Now, if that isn't a grace-filled sandwich, I don't know what is. And then he goes on to their lifestyle. Now, as Tim said last week, I think it's really good. Sin is a deception that robs us of our closeness to our Father God and all that God wants that to bring us. And that's true. And there was an issue in the Corinthian church that Paul had to address. They were going back to their old ways. They were bringing the spirit of the city into the church. Now, Paul is not saying that sexual sin is greater than any other sin. Sin is sin. The wages of sin is death. You don't get more death for what we might think are bigger sins. Sin is sin. And it's not just our actions, our behavior. You remember Jesus talked about if we think it in our hearts, we cannot meet God's standard. We need Jesus. And some of the sins are more obvious than others, some sexual sin or more hidden like pornography, that traps so many people. But Paul does want them to know that sexual sin has greater consequences and a greater impact on us than other sins. Why? Because as Paul says, it impacts our own bodies. It's not outside us, it's actually inside us. So let me be clear. Sex is a gift of God to humanity. It was part of God's plan for our flourishing. It is a blessing. And like all of God's blessings, we need to know how to use it. We all know, you all know, gifts of God can be used for good or ill. Science and knowledge can be used to heal and help people or to destroy people. Fire is a great gift when it's in your log burner. Not very good when it's all over your house. 
sex, as given by God, was designed to be used in a relationship, a covenant, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman as part of the cement that holds them together through good and through bad. Now, that's not a popular view today, I would accept. And it wasn't popular in the Corinth either. But Paul addresses some of their misunderstandings, which are still around today, that sex is a leisure activity. It's not. The Greeks thought, as we do, that it was just another appetite, like the fact that I'm hungry, or I'm thirsty, or I need to sleep. And Paul says, you're wrong. Sex is much, much more than that. Greek philosophy said, doesn't matter what you do with your body, it's your soul that counts. You're wrong. It's what happens to your soul that really counts. The Bible would say, there really is no such thing as casual sex. You may think that's what it is, but it isn't. That's not what's going on in your soul. Paul says, when you have sex with someone, you are joined to them. Your soul is joined to them. And that's what it's designed for with a husband and wife, the joining of our souls together. But having many partners who are not a husband and wife, your husband and wife, will deplete your soul. It will impact your body. God designed it to be used within marriage as part of the mystery that is something to do with Christ and the church. So Paul is encouraging these Corinthians and says, hey, you guys, you, you need to have a rethink. You need to rethink your view of your body. How relevant is that for a generation today brought up with all sorts of body shaming and body image issues? If you're a Christian here today, think about this. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Just let that sink in. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. A place where God has decided to come and live. God has moved in to you. Now I find that incredible. The God who, who dwells in, in unapproachable light, in glory and in heaven, actually has decided to come and live as well in me, in this house. Now, the thing is, see, I think this house could do with maybe a little bit more redecoration, a little bit of freshening up, probably a little bit of downsizing. God is not ashamed to live in you. He's not ashamed. I want you to hear that. He is not ashamed to live in this somewhat dodgy temple. <laughs> He's not. My brothers and sisters, that gives us dignity and honor. The Holy One lives in you. And if God is living in you by his spirit, if he actually lives inside of you, don't bring shame on him by what you do with this. Don't make him feel grieved by the way we use our bodies. Paul is really saying, how can you trash the temple of God 
by using it in immoral acts. As a person, your place is in Christ and Christ is in you and it's those things that are out of place. They shouldn't be in your life anymore. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He, he doesn't come and live with you when you come here on Sunday morning, you know. He doesn't just turn up when you're being spiritual. He's moved in all the time. The point is, whatever we were, before we came to faith, Jesus has washed, he has cleaned us, he has sanctified us. We don't need to live that way anymore. We don't need to. And it's such a serious thing that Paul's advice when you encounter sexual temptation is easy. Even I can remember this. Run! Run! That's not a very complicated strategy, is it? What should you do? Run! Run for your spiritual lives. Don't hang around where temptation lingers. It never ends well. Run away. That is a wisdom from God that is powerful and effective. Run away. You don't need to be there. You know, we moved house within Darlington, the town where we lived uh, whilst we were there. And there were a couple of times early on where I left work and I wasn't really thinking, you know, I was on automatic, going home, and I pulled up outside our old house. And I thought, oh, I don't live here anymore. That's what Paul is saying to them. Hey, guys. Because of what Jesus has done, you moved house. Don't pull up outside your old house. Stay in your new one. God's plans for us, God's commands for us, are not born out of a desire to spoil our fun, to mess up our lives, to make life difficult. God's plans because he's a good father, are for us to prosper. How much pain and suffering and broken relationships do we have in our society because of sexual immorality? It's a killer. And God is saying to us, we don't need to be like that. We want to model something different of the goodness of God, the goodness to his children. When Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus, he tells them this. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. There you go. Throw it off. It's gone. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature. Created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. We have a debt of love and gratitude, like Azim, but unlike him, as we follow Jesus, we'll never be able to repay him. But it's a good path to follow, I promise you. With all my heart, I want you to know that, especially if you're young here today. I was young once, believe it or not. 
God's desire is to love you and for you to flourish. His ways are wise and truly, truly good. Life in all its fullness only comes by following Jesus. And if you're not sure who you are, you need to get in touch with the one who made you because he's the only one who knows who you really are. So I want to finish with an appeal by Paul to the words, uh, with the words to the church in Rome. He says this in Romans 12 verse 1, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, I plead with you, dear brothers and sisters, give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a high price. So glorify God in your body. I'm going to hand back to the band if they'd like to come up and Luke shortly. And we're going to finish this morning by breaking bread. Always good. When we talk about sin and we all fall, when we talk about sin, wherever there's sin, there's more grace and there's more forgiveness. You know, wherever sin is great, God's grace and forgiveness is greater. And this meal that we're going to celebrate together in a moment is a celebration of that, that where sin increased, the grace of God abounded. So wherever you need to be this morning, whatever you, you have taken from this morning, I want to just say this as my final thing. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You were and afresh today you can be washed and sanctified and justified. Amen.